So there's a story about a boy who came home from school one day. And his father greeted him, asked him how his day had been, fixed him a snack, and then the father had to go do something in another part of the house. So as he left, he said to his son, remember, no TV until you're finished with your homework. Five minutes later, the dad comes back to find his son watching cartoons on his tablet. The kid's homework hadn't even made it out of the backpack yet. And exasperated, he says to his son, son, what did I tell you? What? The boy replies, you said no TV. I'm not watching TV, he says, waving his tablet in the air. You might say that the boy had followed the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. You might also say that boy had a future as a lawyer. (laughs) Jesus' teaching that we hear in our gospel reading today is all about moving us beyond the letter and into the spirit of the law. And Jesus' words are not easy words. As he does throughout the Sermon on the Mount, of which this is a small part, Jesus is painting a picture of what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is an upside-down realm, where the poor in spirit, those who mourn, and those who are persecuted are the ones who are blessed. The kingdom of heaven is also a realm of righteousness. So last week we heard Jesus say to his disciples that unless their righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and Pharisees, they would not enter the kingdom of heaven. And now Jesus is spelling out more of what that means, more of what it means to have this kind of righteousness. And what he's saying is that righteousness isn't just about following God's law with your outward actions. It's also about the inward orientation of your heart. You have heard that it was said, Jesus says multiple times in the passage, before naming different commands of the law. But then he says, but I say to you, and gives his own warnings and instructions. Warnings and instructions that have less to do with our actions and more to do with our emotions, our intentions, and our relationships with others. Now, it's important to understand what Jesus is not doing here. Jesus is not negating the commandments of the law. He is not saying That old stuff that God commanded back in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and oh, all the prophets, that stuff's not important anymore. I'm here to tell you what is important. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Because remember, just a few verses before this, he said, don't think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What Jesus is doing isn't negating the commandments of the law. It's intensifying them. It's taking them to the next level. He's saying it's not enough to just follow the outward commands of the law if you're not also trying to shape your heart toward the values of the law. 
He's saying that the spirit of the law matters every bit as much as the letter of it. So, Jesus says, you're feeling pretty good about yourself because you've never murdered anyone. Well, good. It's a good place to start. But how about this? It's not just people who murder other people who are subject to judgment. It's people who are angry at other people. Now, I don't think that Jesus is saying that all anger is sin. Because there are plenty of places in the gospel where Jesus himself gets angry. What Jesus is talking about here is anger that we dwell in. Anger that comes not from our grief or our pain, but from our desire to cause grief or pain to others. That kind of anger, Jesus says, is every bit as bad as outright murder. You can imagine the disciples kind of shifting in their seats as they hear this. (laughs) So why does Jesus condemn this kind of anger so strongly? I think we can surmise it from what he says next. He says, if you're coming to the temple to make a sacrifice to God, and you remember that your brother has something against you, that is, you've done something wrong to your brother, leave your sacrifice at the altar, go repent, be reconciled with your brother, and then come back and make your sacrifice. Basically, Jesus is saying that the harm that we do to others impedes our relationship with God. Not because God can't handle our sin, but because when we have unacknowledged and unconfessed sin, it gets in our way as we relate to God. And I think it's important to note also that what Jesus is talking about here is when we have done something wrong to someone else. When our brother or sister in the community of faith has something against us. That's the case when Jesus says our repentance is required and we are to seek reconciliation. He's not talking about what we're to do when, when we have something against someone else, when they have done something to hurt or harm us. Of course, elsewhere in the gospel, Jesus makes it clear that in that situation, we are required to forgive the one who has harmed us. But if we have forgiven them, then there's nothing in that relationship that gets in the way as we then relate to God. We may want reconciliation in those circumstances, but as the one who was wronged, we can't make that happen. The other person, the one who has harmed us, has to be willing to reconcile. So our job is to forgive. So getting back to Jesus' sermon, he says, after he says that anger that seeks someone's harm is as bad as murder, he goes on just in case we didn't get the point. He says, you know you're not supposed to commit adultery. But did you know that if you even lust after someone who is not your spouse, in your heart, that is as bad as actually having committed adultery? We probably all have at least heard about how Jimmy Carter once confessed to having committed adultery in his heart. And it was heard and treated almost like a joke. An endearing, if slightly weird, confession from a naive and simple peanut farmer. But for Jesus, this was not a joke. 
He said it would be better to tear out your own eye or cut off your hand than to let those parts of you lead you into the sin of lust. This is, by the way, I think a pretty powerful rebuke to the argument that I often hear made that the solution for the problem of men's lust is for women to show greater modesty. I'm not saying that women shouldn't be modest, that they should make a prideful show of their bodies, but the problem with doing that would be that it's prideful, not the lust that it causes. Jesus is pretty, pretty clear that the responsibility for curbing lust lies on the one doing the lusting and not on the one being lusted after. And in a culture like ours that often seems entirely built on lust, Jesus' words can seem anachronistic, even irrelevant. But I think it's important to consider why lust is such a problem that Jesus addresses. In some ways, you can think of it and think it's sort of like a, a victimless crime. The one being lusted after may never know that they're being lusted after. And the spouse of the one doing the lusting may never know either. But to lust after another person is to use that person for our pleasure even if only in our minds. Methodist pastor James Howell put it this way. He says, Lust assaults mentally and many times physically the other as an object for my pleasure, not as a person. When we lust after someone, we are not concerned with who they are or what they want or how we might love and serve them. We are only concerned for how they could make us feel. And if we lust after someone who is not our spouse, then we're indicating, at least in that moment, we're treating our spouse the same way. If we're thinking that our spouse doesn't make us feel the way that person makes us feel, then we're betraying the fact that we're not really concerned with our spouse as a person, but as an object for us. And if that's where you find yourself, Jesus says, go ahead and cut out your eye Cut off your hand, because it's going to be better to go through life like that than to indulge your lust any longer. So, Jesus tackles anger, he tackles lust, he moves right on to divorce. Jesus is not pulling any punches here. He says, you've heard that the rule is that when you divorce your wife, you're supposed to give her a certificate of divorce. And a certificate of divorce in that day would allow her to remarry. But I say something more, Jesus says. I say if you divorce a woman other than for reasons of sexual immorality and she remarries, you make her guilty of adultery. That is a pretty insanely harsh thing for Jesus to say. Why would he say it? I think he's trying to communicate a couple of things. I think he's saying that divorce, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, isn't legitimate. And so then when the wife enters into another marriage, it's as though she's still married to her first husband. And I think if we're really going to understand the context, or if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying about divorce, we have to understand the context into which he's saying it. Because it's different than ours is in 21st century America. 
In Jesus' day and in his culture, women could not initiate divorce. Only men could do that. So this is not an equal playing field whatsoever. Also in this culture, women were almost entirely dependent on men for their economic well-being, whether it was a husband or a father or sometimes a grown son. So if a husband divorces his wife for no just cause, then she is left incredibly vulnerable. She may become destitute. So what Jesus is doing in these words on divorce is he is looking out for women, for the people who are most vulnerable in that culture. He's saying that even though women had no rights and had very little power, that they still were not to be used for men's pleasure and discarded at will. By focusing on the interior dimensions of the experience of divorce, Jesus is calling his disciples to a way of life that is oriented not toward their own pleasure, but toward the well-being of others. Now, the church recognizes through, through history a, a number of reasons for divorce in addition to adultery, abuse, abandonment, addictions. The point still stands that marriage is something to be held sacred, to be preserved, and not to be discarded for our own convenience or pleasure. And all of that points to this theme that weaves through all of Jesus' teaching in this passage, which is that how we are on the inside affects how we relate on the outside. So our interior sin, the orientation of our hearts away from love, that sin harms relationships. So if we dwell in our anger against someone, there is a rupture in our relationship with them. When we lust after someone, we cease to treat them as God's image bearer and instead treat them as an object of desire. When we use divorce as a means of pursuing our own ends, we transgress against and harm those who are more vulnerable than we are. And what all of these truths point to is a much bigger truth, which is that our lives are deeply intertwined with others. God intends for us to live in community. He intends for other people's flourishing to be our concern. And that's why Jesus' words are so strong here. Because the kind of sin that he's talking about, while it may take place inside our hearts, it doesn't stay in our hearts. Even our interior sin harms people, and it harms community. And so Jesus calls his disciples to righteousness, not just in their actions, but in their hearts. And I think all of that puts us in a bit of a pickle. Because you only need the tiniest amount of honesty and self-awareness to know that you, that we all, stand convicted by Jesus' words. So where is the good news for us in this passage? 
The good news for us is in remembering that God is not surprised by our sin. When Jesus begins his ministry in Matthew's gospel, his first words, his first sermon are, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is the starting point for Jesus' disciples, because Jesus knows we all need to do it. If we remember that our sin is not a surprise to God and it is not a hindrance to God, then we can find good news in this passage. We find good news in this passage when we remember where these words came to us from. These were not words spoken out of the heavens. They were not written on a tablet that was dropped somewhere. These words were spoken by Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. They were spoken by God who came right here in the midst of our mess and our brokenness and our sin. Jesus doesn't just command righteousness from far off. He comes right into the middle of our lives and guides us where we are. And there is good news in the fact when we remember that our sin can never change God's love for us. We say every week that Jesus died once for all upon the cross. Our sin has been forgiven and put away, so there is nothing that we can do that will make God love us less, and there is nothing we can do that will make God love us more. Living the kind of righteous life that Jesus is calling his disciples to here is not a way to curry favor with God. It is a way to reflect the goodness of God who has come and saved us and who lives in us. And there is good news for us in this passage when we remember what we talked about in our sermons in January. That the work of transforming our hearts is God's work to do. It isn't ours. We need to allow it. We need to open ourselves up to his spirit. But it's God's love that that transforms our hearts. It's God's love that accomplishes the kind of righteousness in us that Jesus is talking about. It is God's spirit living in us that helps us to keep Not just the letter, but the spirit of the law. I was talking this week with a friend of mine who has a third grade daughter, and she was saying how her daughter had been caught lying to her. And it had been sort of a thing. And she'd been trying to, you know, con- to explain why this was wrong and not to shame her daughter, but also to make, to make sure that this was not, she knew this is not acceptable behavior. And then my friend was at Target, and this was several days before Valentine's Day, so there were all the little Valentine's goodies, and she said, you know, I was so excited. I bought both of my girls a little Valentine present, and I was disappointed with my daughter that she lied, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to get her a Valentine. The Valentine is entirely separate from her lying. It's just a gift. It's just an expression of my love for her. She said, really, isn't God sort of the same way? Does God call us to live righteous lives? Yes. 
Does he call us to be salt and light in the world, to point people toward God and to give a picture of the kingdom of heaven? Yes. Is God's love changed for us one iota by our sin? No. And it is in accepting God's love, that gift of his love and grace, that our hearts are transformed to begin with. It is God's spirit that lets us keep the spirit of the law. Thanks be to God.